Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. You know, it's a very, very popular thing these days, not just a med device, but it seems like everywhere you go, whether it be in social media or, you know, just watching TV, it seems like all the rage these days is AI, artificial intelligence. Everything has AI built into it. And it, it, you know, certainly med device is no exception. And certainly software as a med device is, is probably a, a growing example or, or uh, a segment of the market where I would expect to see a lot of growth in AI and machine learning. And, you know, I guess if you think about it from a technology and from an innovation standpoint, that's awesome. You know, potentially, of course, there are regulatory ramifications. The good news is we'll have some experts from Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. We have Michelle Rubin Owner. She wrote a really fantastic piece that was recently featured on RAPS. Uh, she has a lot of uh, knowledge that she shares. And then we also have Alison Komiyama with Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies, too. So enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru. Pretty excited about this one. Um, a few weeks ago, I read this uh, really fascinating article on uh, RAPS, regulatory focus. Folks, if you're in the medical device industry and you're not reading articles on uh, RAPS, on the regulatory focus, you're really missing a lot of uh, invaluable content. This particular article, and I'll provide a link to this in the, the text that accompanies the podcast, but the title of this was Regulating Software as a Medical Device in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. I mean, you cannot turn on a TV these days and 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 without hearing something about AI in some way, shape, or form. And it's certainly a very hot topic in the medical device industry. I think software as a med device seems to be, it, it, I don't know where I would find this out for sure, but it seems to be one of the hottest growing sectors of the medical device market as well. And I'm thrilled that on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, we actually have the author of this article, Michelle Rubin, owner uh, she is a regulatory specialist with Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies. So, Michelle, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And, and I, this is like a double your pleasure, double your fun sort of moment because in addition to Michelle, we also have her colleague, Allison Komiyama. Allison, you've heard her before, uh, but she is also with Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies and she's the owner and principal consultant and want to have her context on this because I know uh, both Michelle and Allison work with a lot of companies in this space. So Allison, welcome back. John, thanks so much for having us. Appreciate you it. You got it. So um, Michelle, I think, you know, software as a med device, SAMD or SAMD or however you say it, uh, or whatever your preference is, I think it might be a good place to start to just remind folks what is software as a medical device and, and maybe a couple of, of examples of, of devices that have software, but they're not technically a SAMD kind of product. Can you maybe start with that? Sure. So the SAMD or software as a medical device field is actually, there are four different guidance documents that are actually available to manufacturers and people who are interested in software as a medical device. The very first one that was actually published in, on December 9, 20, 
2013 by the International Medical Device Regulators Forum, the IMDRF, actually has a lot of key definitions. And one of these definitions is actually what an SAMD is. And they say that it is software intended to be used for one or more medical purpose that performs these purposes without being part of a hardware medical device. There have been many different examples that they can provide throughout. So on the FDA website, for example, they provide imaging systems that use algorithms to give diagnostic information for cancer or a smart electrocardiogram device that estimates the probability of a heart attack. There are many, many definitions within this one guidance document and actually the, all the various guidance documents uh, really go into details about how SAMD is developed and how it kind of can continue to develop throughout um, collecting information as real-world evidence. All right, and folks will include a link to that guidance as well. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a pretty good guidance document as far as these things go, and in my opinion, uh, I think it's important because uh, I know you said it's an IMDRF guidance, but you know this is a guidance that that FDA and other regulatory bodies. Uh, they're using this these definitions as well, correct? Yeah, and I'd actually like to point out that the IMDRF is composed of many different regulatory bodies, and actually FDA is the chair of the software as a medical device group. So all of the guidance, there are three guidance documents that were released by the IMDRF, and then one guidance document that's specifically released by FDA, which actually speaks to the clinical evaluation of an SAMD. And FDA does recognize the three that were uh, developed and written by the IMDRF. So, so I, I think it's safe to say that state of the art, at least from a regulatory point of view with respect to software as a medical device, is being led by FDA uh, in this space these days. Yeah, I think FDA is really interested in helping develop a regulatory path for manufacturers of SAMD and really helping these devices get to market. I think that FDA really sees the benefit of these devices. And I think that that, the article that um, I wrote really does highlight that FDA is trying to approach different SAMDs um, and help manufacturers really get to market, but maybe reduce the burden on manufacturers and really ensure that the, the best device gets to market. These guidances, I mean, they're a few years old and, and I know, you know, the FDA has some newer programs in place, uh, not the least of which is the pre-cert program and, and a lot of other initiatives. And they've put some guidance documents out on, on a couple other things like artificial intelligence and machine learning. But it's, and it's a, it's, it's a tortuous thing to try to figure out in some respects, especially if you as an innovative, creative uh, software company are trying to, to bring the latest, greatest product to market and, and you're trying to embrace things like AI and machine learning. I mean, where's, how, do you, how do you navigate these treacherous waters? I mean, what are you supposed to do? Because on one hand, you know, you're trying to, to build these algorithms and, and this machine learning and, and for your software to be adaptive. But I mean, historically speaking, Anytime you make a change to a product, there are potential regulatory ramifications. How do you navigate all this? You're, you're entirely correct. So the current uh, pathways that are developed will often result in the need to continuously submit different types of submissions depending on your on the software, depending on the updates. And so the discussion paper that FDA released about AI machine learning really helped develop um, a possible pathway that actually manufacturers can use that will 
make sure that not every single change that they may implement will actually result in a new submission. So in the in the guidance document, which it actually lists in, in the discussion paper, I'm sorry, which is actually called Proposed Regulatory Framework for Modifications to Artificial Intelligence Machine Learning Based Software as a Medical Device. It is a discussion paper. So at the very end, FDA does actually ask people who are reading it generally manufacturers or regulatory strategists, such as my specialist, such as myself, to, if they wanted to provide input. And I think that that's a really fantastic way if you are developing AI, machine learning. And like you said, it's a new up and coming field. It's maybe doesn't have as quite of a clear path as, as devices uh, like PET and CT scanners that have many 510Ks have set standards, testing standards. Um, it's a really good way as a manufacturer to be involved in the development of the field that you are going to be a part of. And so actually the, the discussion paper does highlight three different modifications that FDA really looks at and says, depending on these types of modifications, you may not need to actually submit a new submission. So the three are performance changes, which often include things like improving the performance of the software's medical device, input changes, which can deal with increasing compatibility to other devices, or say looking at multiple variables such as, let's say, oximetry data and heart rate data, when let's say originally the software as a medical device only looked at oximetry, and intended use changes. And it's really important to note that in the original submission, when you come to FDA in the first in the first place and you say, this is our software as a medical device, you can actually provide in your original submission something called SAMD pre-specifications, which can actually describe any anticipated modifications that you as a manufacturer can see happening to your software as a medical device as you can as you release it to market and you continue to obtain real-world evidence. So as you give the software to more users, maybe you can actually increase the, the specificity or the sensitivity of your software, which would lead to a change in the performance of the software, for example. And you can actually include these pre-specifications along with something called an algorithm change protocol, which actually delineates how you're actually going to implement that in your software as a medical device in your code or kind of how you will ensure that you let the users know that this change is happening so the user doesn't suddenly get very confused about how, um, why the software isn't working, why, say, the mobile app isn't working. And so FDA really looks at it and says, okay, based on the the software that you, the software as a medical device that you're bringing to us based on these pre-specifications and these algorithm change protocols, we think that the submission, they may clear the submission and they may say, if the change is actually fits within the SPS and the ACP that you have provided in the original submission, you may not need to provide a new submission. So you can either contact the review team originally that reviewed your, your software's medical device. You can either submit a pre-submission or if you want, you can submit a new submission, but sometimes that can be burdensome. So really, FDA is going to look at and say, the changes that you're proposing as the manufacturer, is that really going to change the intended use of the device? And if it does, or if it's outside of the sphere of the SPS and the ACP that you propose in the original submission, then you might trigger the need for a new submission. So I think that 
this new paper, this new discussion paper really highlights that FDA is trying to work with manufacturers and say, yes, the purpose of AI and machine learning, as even FDA defines on their website, is, is constantly changing. It does incorporate. It is not locked. It's what they call adaptive software, adaptive algorithm. So I think they really understand the benefit of that. And, and they really want to develop a system where you're not constantly coming in with a new submission, say, every month as the the software and the algorithm. Yeah, and I want to chime in here too, because I think uh, Michelle brought up a really important word here, uh, burden, right? And I think FDA has looked at these uh, AI machine learning uh, software as a medical device and would say, oh my gosh, we're going to be looking at thousands of new (laughs) submissions because, you know, the algorithms change and they don't want to essentially add additional burden for these manufacturers. So this has been a very exciting thing for us to see you know, as regulatory consultants to see FDA take this step forward to really put this discussion paper out there. And actually, we had um, a file last week, we were meeting, uh, Michelle and I were meeting with FDA, and it was a file that when we submitted it, uh, it was a pre-submission, FDA actually came back and said, hey, we have this discussion paper, would you please recommend that your client submit feedback on it? So it was really promising to also hear that they are really trying to get feedback from industry because they realize, well, they have a big digital health group. So the Cool Patel's group is, I think it's almost 15 people now at FDA. Um, and they were sitting in on this meeting as well. They had representatives from that group in this meeting. I mean, they are looking to industry as saying, we don't have all the experts in the room at FDA with us. We're really looking to understand what are your needs? What are your opinions about um, these this discussion? So very cool. Well, I was, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Allison, because I, I um, as Michelle was sharing the SAMD pre-specifications and the algorithm change protocol, I, I got to imagine there's there's some regulatory art, if you will, in in identifying what these things might be that may be outside the skill set of uh, a classic software developer. Can you talk a little bit about some of your experience? And working with clients on uh, how you go about defining these things, so that you know you, you can incorporate this within your submission pathway, so that you know you're not constantly revising and, and doing a new submission every other month or so. Sure. So I think you know, as Michelle said as well, the guidance out there is fairly good. I think FDA right now is still trying to figure out how they're going to regulate a lot of this, which is uh, as as Michelle said, this is a great time to be a manufacturer because essentially they're helping uh, define what is actually going into these submissions. There have been a handful of uh, devices that have been cleared or they're the de novo uh, submissions for companies that have AI components or you know pure software as a medical device submitted. I think um, you know definitely the guidance documents about what sort of uh, for software documentation what you should include. I think the other big thing that FDA is really focused on is cybersecurity, especially with a lot of these devices. So fortunately, there is guidance on what you need to include, uh, but it it's changing. Michelle, yeah. you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I think that that I think part of this whole development of SPS and an ACP is that it really allows FDA and the manufacturer to have this open conversation of kind of where do you see your software as a medical device continue to grow? How do how do you see your AI or machine learning uh, adapt and integrate the information that you're getting once users get your uh, SAMD and 
I, I think that as we use the guidance documents, but also in these discussions with FDA, I think it also helps us as, as regulatory specialists, the manufacturer and FDA kind of develop this understanding of what are possible or what are approved S, SPS and ACPs and, and what are modifications that might be outside of that or not. So I think it's a really, it's exciting time and, and you really, you get to work firsthand with FDA in developing kind of the definitions and then the pathway. Yeah, it's really cool. And, and uh, Allison, you mentioned Bakul Patel and the digital health uh, program and initiative. And, and folks, I, I can tell you that, that the FDA is very, very hungry to, to learn from you. They have some really exciting programs. In fact, on the digital health side of things, I'll put a plug in here for, for that team at FDA. They, um, they have a call to action for SAMD companies to participate at a test plan for software pre-certification. And I'll include a link for that as well. Uh, if, if you're interested in this, I think this is a, a really great way to get in early and really help shape the future of regulations that enables technology and innovation, especially as we talk about things like software as a medical device and AI and machine learning. So uh, it's certainly something that, that I think you should consider. The, the FDA is a different uh, entity versus when we started, uh, when I started my career. Uh, it's much more progressive. It's much more collaborative. Programs like the pre-cert, programs like the pre-submission program, these are all in place uh, to, to try to listen to what the challenges are and to adapt regulatory models so that uh, it, they're not hindrances and they're not burdens that they're actually there to help streamline the process as best as possible. Of course, keeping in mind patient safety. And Michelle, you mentioned you know, some of the details and the nuances of, of uh, software. You know, I think one of the key things that, that I, I know is still important, there's still a, a, um, a stratification or classification, or I, I don't know, I'm struggling for the word here, but there's still a way to, to basically define criticality of your software. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that and how this, that plays into this AI and machine learning aspects? Sure. And I actually just want to add, uh, you did mention that FDA has a call out to be a part of the, the testing plan for the pre-cert program. And I think that's an excellent opportunity for manufacturers to not just help develop the, the regulatory field for software as a medical device, but also help FDA understand how manufacturers approach a, a specific culture in an SAMD company. So I think that that's a really great opportunity to introduce FDA to maybe a different kind of thinking or a different approach to medical device development. Yeah. So you're right in mentioning that there's actually different categorization and testing actually for software as a medical device. And I really want to emphasize that the categorizations for software as a medical device is independent of categorization of medical devices in general. I think that's really important to remember because they do um, look at different things. So to categorize software as a medical device, you really are going to consider two things. You're going to consider the significance of the information that is provided by the software as a medical device. So for example, does it treat or diagnose? Does it drive clinical management? Or does it inform clinical management? So drive and clinical drive and inform clinical management kind of sounds very similar. So when you drive clinical management, you actually help in determining the, the treatment or diagnosis, or you help identify early signs of a disease or a condition. 
Whereas informing clinical management actually includes just providing the options that the patient may have in treating or diagnosing or preventing, mitigating a disease, or, you know, aggregating relevant information so that the healthcare provider can understand the options moving forward. The other thing to consider is the actually state of healthcare situation or condition. So specifically, is it for a critical condition, a serious condition, or a non-serious condition? So a critical condition is exactly how it sounds. It's a scenario where accurate or timely diagnosis is essential to avoid serious health deterioration or death. And I want to point out that all of these situations or conditions actually do consider not just the sole patient, they actually do consider public health. So if the software as a medical device does help the public health and say avoiding mitigating an impact to the public health for long-term disability, that's something that actually will be considered as part of a, a critical healthcare situation. A serious situation would be to un avoid unnecessary interventions. You don't want a patient to undergo an unnecessary biopsy. And a non-serious will be that the accurate diagnosis or treatment is important, but it's not actually critical for to avoid any interventions or it might not lead to untimely death. And you'll see in the paper that, John, you will happily provide the link to, and I'm very thankful that you're sharing the paper. There's actually a table that FDA has developed with the IMDRF to really help delineate if you are a SAMD that treats or diagnoses, let's say in a critical healthcare situation, you're going to be a Category four software as a medical device, that's the highest category. Let's say you inform clinical management in a non-serious scenario. So you're providing the healthcare professional with different information about the different opportunities for treatment of a non-so-serious um, health issue, like, oh, I don't know, allergies, for example, you're going to be a category one. And all these categories are relative to each other. Like I mentioned, they are not actually related or in any way in, um, interacting with the classification of medical devices. So we have class one, class two, class three medical devices. That is different. And depending on the category of your software as a medical device, it'll actually lead to different ways that you're going to approach the clinical evaluation of your software as a medical device. Um, I really want to highlight here that in the guidance document that FDA released on December 8th, 2017, that actually talks about clinical evaluation and it really goes into more detail about this, it does say that every software as a medical device has to undergo clinical evaluation. And there, this evaluation actually involves three steps. So the first is valid clinical association. And that speaks to, is there an association between the output that the software as a medical device will provide and a targeted clinical condition. So is there scientific evidence or is there kind of clinically accepted output or outcomes that your software as a medical device is providing? The second is an analytical validation. And that's asking whether the actual algorithm, the software can actually process the data that it's receiving, the input data to generate accurate, reliable, and precise output data. And then the last thing is the clinical evaluation itself. And that's to say that is the output data that you are getting from your SAMD, is it actually achieving your intended purpose in the target population in the clinical care context? And that's really important. They really want to know is at the end of the day, when the user gets your SAMD, is it going to act how you want it to? Is it going to achieve the intended purpose that you want, the intended use? and 
is it going to work in the scenario that you want? Folks, I want to remind you that I'm talking with Michelle Rubin, owner, and Allison Komayama. Both Allison and Michelle are with Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies. Allison, tell us a little bit about uh, this event that you have coming up uh, later this year in August. Uh, great segue. Um, I'm just, I'm just <laughs> taking a brief pause. We'll come back to no, the action here in a moment. But if you want to learn more about this <laughs> and meet Michelle and myself, uh, yeah, we have a, a conference going on this August from uh, the 19th to the 21st here in San Diego. Um, it's all former FDA reviewers who are the speakers, and we have a really great uh, topic on the second day. Uh, which is the Tuesday, August 20th. And it, it's going to be hot topics about everything you want to know about digital health. So we're going to be talking about software as a medical device, cybersecurity, and definitely focusing on artificial intelligence and machine learning. Uh, afterwards, we're going to have sort of a panel with all the speakers that are available that day who are going to sort of talk to you about their experience. So some of them are regulatory consultants. Other, one, other uh, speakers are with uh, big companies, you might recognize the names like Medtronic and Stryker, uh, and they all are working on interesting projects that involve these uh, the topic that we're talking about today. So I think uh, if you want to learn more about this or even just about any sort of regulatory documents that they want to submit to FDA, uh, please come to the event. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing some Greenlight Guru folks there too. Yeah, Greenlight Guru, we're sponsoring, we'll be there. Folks, it's an exciting agenda. It's the first of many to come, uh, Regulatory Alliance Forum. You can find out more information. Go to acknowledge-rs.com. Uh, it'll be pretty obvious once you go to the website to, to see where you can find more information about this. But August the 19th through the 21st in uh, beautiful San Diego, California. Um, while I'm taking this brief pause, I want to re- remind you, of course, you're listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, but did you, you know, excuse me, did you know that Greenlight Guru, we also have a brand new podcast? Yeah, that's right. We have a new podcast. It's called MedTech True Quality Stories. It's so much fun for me to do all of these podcasts. The MedTech True Quality Stories is a little bit of a different angle. On those episodes, we talk with uh, folks that are running med device companies or in the trenches, so to speak. And they sh- these people are sharing their stories of, of some of the obstacles and barriers and the challenges that they face every day as a medical device professional and, and how true quality brings them to the top and allows them to be successful. So wherever you're listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, you can also find MedTech True Quality Stories. Go check it out. Share it with your friends. Give us a thumbs up, as they say, and, and uh, appreciate you listening. All right. So, um, Michelle, you, you said a couple of things that I want to dive a little bit deeper on. You were talking about uh, this notion of clinical evaluation, and you talked about uh, a couple of different types of validation of uh, to support your clinical evaluation. And as you were saying that, I'm like, this is like, that's like design control one-on-one. And I think this is some of the challenges that personally that I hear a lot from software as a med device. Traditionally speaking, it seems as though SAMD companies are software companies first and med device companies second. In fact, they, they almost resist this whole idea of design control and documenting risk and all these sorts of things. I, I guess either one of you, can you chime in and maybe speak a little bit to, to what those challenges that, that you observe in your practice and, and how you help companies overcome that? <laughs> Go ahead, Michelle. So I think that when it comes to risk categorization, I think that that's really something that 
when we kind of start the conversation with a manufacturer, you really have to consider that from the very beginning, because I think that helps you really categorize your software as a medical device. And at the end of the day, it drives all of the interactions that you may have with FDA and the various information that's going to be in your submission. So yes, there, there are manufacturers that might be resistant to really addressing those risks, but I think that really explaining and, and really kind of seeing it as it's not necessarily that FDA is going to say, this is a risk, this is terrible. It's, it's helping FDA understand how you approach the device and kind of what you see the intended use of the device being and how you as the manufacturer see the device developing. And all of those risks and mitigations that you may need to implement for, for the risk categorizations and the risks that you see help you develop the software, but also helps FDA help you get the SAMD to market. So I, I think that there is a there is a a benefit to using quality systems and, and really understanding risk and, and mitigating the risk to help you develop the best SAMD that you can to get it to market. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we definitely do when we you know engage with a client is to try and help them understand you know what what software they do they have. We have some you know uh, worksheets that we sort of send to them and ask them to go through to help us understand their device. And then hopefully, you know, with that information, we can help FDA then understand the device. Because I would always say, you know, especially in a 510K, the most important sections are, you know, the device description and the substantial equivalence discussion, right? And if the FDA does not understand your device, uh, then you're kind of, you know, dead in the water from, uh, from day one, you know, so helping them understand, especially if it's software and it's complicated, uh, it's going to help you get to market faster. I think one of the other things I was going to recommend, I thought about earlier, John, when you were talking is that, you know, FDA is really interested in this, right? And so one of the things that a lot of folks don't know is when they go in to FDA with a pre-submission, definitely reach out or in, as part of that pre-submission, say that you would like to have the digital health participants as you know part of that meeting if you're especially if you're requesting a face-to-face meeting if you don't i mean essentially the review team is going to get it uh that you know whatever branch it's going to they'll review it um oftentimes the branches or they're not called branches anymore but for purposes we're just going to say branch still but the branch will have a software person or you know a point person that's part of the focus group that can ping the digital health folks but if they don't or if they don't think to do it, you know, the digital folks, the digital health people will not be pulled into that meeting. So you can definitely put that request into your pre-submission, either in the cover letter or at the end of the document when you're asking what sort of feedback you want from FDA. At least they will be able to say, uh, sure, you know, we'll, we'll ask if there are any representatives that are willing to sit in on that meeting. Because I thought, you know, we actually had two meetings last week with FDA. The digital health group was in part, was part of both of those meetings. And it was extremely valuable, you know, not only for the review team, but also for the digital health folks that could understand, you know, what are the regulatory implications of what we're trying to do. And the, and I would say both um, clients really liked having that interaction with, um, with that group. Yeah, excellent tips. And I, folks, I just want to clarify one thing. So Michelle used the word manufacturer. And I know some of you, especially software folks, might have been rolling your eyes saying that that doesn't apply to me and we don't manufacture anything. But remember the regulatory definition of manufacturer. So if your SAMD 
by regulatory definition, that makes you a manufacturer of the software. So just keep that in mind that this statement does apply to you. The other thing I want to chime in on is uh, design controls. I mean, uh, Michelle did a really great job of talking about assessing risk early on and using that as, as a means to help drive what you're doing from a development standpoint and as a means to communicate to any regulatory body, uh, you know, what it is that you're doing and why it's important and those sorts of things. But realize that this, this concept of design controls, it may be a foreign concept to you because, you know, you're software developer first. Uh, you may have even seen the infamous waterfall uh, design control diagram and say, ah, that's, that's not uh, agile methodology. That's waterfall. It doesn't apply to me. Well, that's not true. It is, remember that waterfall diagram it's a representation of how design control elements interact with one another. You are doing design control activities when you're developing software. You may not call it that. You may not define it as such. But it is important to understand how to speak the language of regulators as you're going through the design and development process. So if you need some help with that translation, that's one of the things we do here at Greenlight Guru. We have an EQMS software platform with design and development workflows, with risk workflows built right into our platform. We speak MedDevice. We can help you with that translation. I know Michelle and I know Allison can as well. So uh, you can also reach out to the folks that acknowledge regulatory strategies. Yeah, and John, I just want to chime in. I think that's an excellent point. If you're a specification developer and you're developing the software, you are the manufacturer. If you, if essentially, you are going to be the one that's going to take this to market. I think, and it behooves companies that even have uh, a general wellness device. I mean, a lot of these companies start as a general wellness product, and then they can do a bunch of research and find out, hey, we can make some medical claims with this. Let's now go to FDA and you know essentially work through a de novo and get something on the market. Heck, if you have your quality system already done and you know you've been working on it since day one, oh my gosh, it's going to make your life so much easier. So yeah. and actually, I think Mike Drews did a podcast on the general wellness to medical device uh, with you. I send that to so many clients. So I, I feel like if there are a lot of people maybe listening to this podcast that should look up that one as well. Yeah, that is a, a good one. And, and I was going to bring that up. And so I'm glad you mentioned it first. The, there definitely seems to be a convergence these days of uh, consumer technology, of AI, machine learning, software as a med device, general wellness. Um, I mean, I'm just curious, what are your thoughts about the convergence of all these different technologies? Uh, it seems like, uh, you know, there's some challenges, there's some nuances, but it seems like there's some real exciting opportunities too. I'm just curious what your thoughts might be. Yeah, I, I'm, I think it's very exciting. I think the, uh, you know, risk is that people just try to stay general wellness for a long time. I mean, FDA is very savvy when they see implied claims, right? If there is a, a medical device that all of a sudden... Uh, a specific population is using to help cure, treat, or mitigate their disease, be aware that FDA will likely catch on to that. So, And there might be a competitor out there that's going to very happily go you know, through the regulatory hoops to get on the market legally with those claims, and you're going to be left in the dust. So, um, you know, again, FDA is, is interested in talking to you. Uh, you know, and I think there's a lot of resources. There are a lot of resources out there now to help you get to market. All right, so this this is a loaded question, so I'll tell you that before I ask it. Obviously, a lot of our conversation today has been somewhat FDA-centric, and 
but at the same time, we brought in you know points about IMDRF. Uh, you know, the I and IMDRF stands for international. So the the notion of harmonization on software as a med device, there seems to be at least the framework for that. And when Michelle talked about clinical evaluation, obviously for those folks that are uh, interested in Europe, uh, that's become a very hot topic uh, for the EU MDR. I guess speculate a little bit, or maybe you know, how is this framework that we've been talking about today, software as a med device, leveraging uh, you know, the, a vehicle for AI, machine learning, how do you see this playing out in, in the EU and maybe other regulatory markets? Oh, man, you know that we focus on U.S. regs, right? Uh, and, and for good reason. I mean, I do, but I mean, I, you have your finger on the pulse. I mean, you're working with companies that are looking at all these markets. No, and- that's, that's a very good point. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, I know that, you know, the point of this uh, IMDRF, IMDRF, which used to be the Global Harmonization Task Force, right? You're totally right. They're trying to harmonize, uh, you know, and, and essentially converge. I like that word a lot. Uh, to, you know, essentially not create burden for manufacturers that are looking to go into other countries and looking to use their device, um, you know, not just in the U.S., not just in the EU market. I think there's a lot of um, dust that needs to settle in Europe right now with some of the regs, especially with the changing um, of the MDD to MDR and the IVDD to IVDR. Um, actually, that is another topic we are going to co- cover at the conference. If people are interested oh, wow, cool. in coming, we're going to talk about um, how, what's the best way to transition from um, you know the, the directive to the regulation. But I think uh, you know FDA has definitely taken a, a leader position. I, I believe in the AI machine learning as well as software as a medical devices. Um, and Michelle said that they are. You know, the, I think they are the current chair. They were the current, uh, were the chair when they put out that um, the, the guidance documents. But you know, the nice thing is uh, the countries are working together, and you know that's it's a nice thing to see, especially for so long. I feel like the regulations did not match up, and now we see a lot of harmonization across quality systems as well. Right, FDA coming out and saying they'll start accepting ISO 1345 and, you know, the uh, MIDSAP or the medical device single audit program. I think this is, we're, we're now seeing this as, um, I don't know, a, a more common uh, thing in, in this industry, which is really exciting. All right. So any final thoughts as we wrap up this episode of the podcast? My final thought is I'm very excited to uh, see you also in San Diego for the last uh, roadshow. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. Bring that up because I'm very excited about what you guys are doing. Man, I forgot about that. Thanks uh, for bringing that up. Folks, we, uh, Greenlight Guru, we are doing true quality roadshows uh, across the country. Uh, by the time this uh, episode goes live, I'm guessing we would have hit our next stop, but we've been in Indianapolis, Boston, Minneapolis, Atlanta, uh, San Francisco. Uh, we're going to be hitting. Uh, Houston and Orange County and San Diego. I, I might have left one off, but uh, really exciting events. Uh, if we're coming to a city near you, be sure to sign up. It's free. Great networking, great panel discussions. We talk about a lot of these types of topics, what's hot and, and important for those of us in the medical device industry. What, what do we need to be paying attention to? What are some of the trends that we're seeing? So be sure to check that out. Just search Greenlight Guru True Quality Roadshow and you'll get a 
a link right away to be able to see where we're going to be and when we're going to be there and, and an opportunity to sign up. So thanks for bringing that up. Michelle, any parting words, words of wisdom, tips and pointers that you think are really important that um, folks in the SAMD and AI and machine learning know before we uh, wrap things up today? I think the last thing I really just want to highlight is is not to be afraid of any regulatory body. I think that FDA and and I think probably in the MDR as as the MDR continues to develop and grow is is really to, they're excited. They want to continue to understand AI and machine learning and deep learning and and all these different intricacies of algorithms and software as a medical device. And I think that really don't be afraid to submit a pre-sub and and really begin the discussion with FDA to help develop the regulatory path, but also help ensure that your software as a medical device can get to market and be the best that it can be. So I think I really just want to really emphasize that, that don't be afraid of regulatory bodies. Uh, even if it's a it's a new subject to them, they are really excited, and they, as Alice mentioned, they really want to talk to industry and learn from industry, and and really have this collaborative relationship with industry when it comes to AI and machine learning. All right, terrific, Allison Komiyama, Michelle Rubin, owner with Acknowledge Regulatory Strategies. Check them out at acknowledge-rs.com. Thank you so much for being my guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast. As I mentioned earlier, I encourage you all to check out what we're doing at Greenlight Guru. Go to www.greenlight.guru, where you'll learn more about the only EQMS software platform designed specifically and exclusively for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals. So things that are happening at FDA, EU, ISO, we got you covered. We built that into the platform on purpose so that you can focus on what's important, and that's true quality of your medical device. As always, this is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. <laughs>